What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today we're bringing you part one of our live event with the South Bank Centre. The war in Ukraine, how does it end? This event was hosted by the BBC's Clive Myrie, who is joined by four leading historians, Orlando Figes, Max Hastings, Anne Applebaum, and Alessia Kromachuk. The event began with a reading from Alessia Kromachuk from her book, The Death of a Soldier, told by his sister, which we will hear at the top of this episode. Part two and part three of this event are available ad-free for subscribers now. And for our listeners who don't subscribe, part two will be available in our next episode. This event took place in March 2023 and is part of Intelligence Squared's live debate partnership with the South Bank Centre. Good evening. Thank you so much. Um, I will read a very short extract from my book, The Death of a Soldier Told by His Sister, and the events that I will describe in that extract happened six years ago exactly. The book is about my brother, Volodya, who died in action in 2017 in Luhansk region, and tomorrow is his sixth anniversary of death. So I'd like to read this in memory of my brother, but also all of those servicemen and women and civilians who are perishing in this genocidal war that Russia is waging against Ukraine. One day, I received a Facebook message from someone I didn't know saying, Forgive my strange question, but we are looking for this person living in the UK, followed by my mother's name and details. I don't suppose she's your relative. As soon as I read it, I knew that one of those things that I was supposed to expect, but had tried not to think about, had happened. I just wasn't sure which exactly. A severe injury? Capture? For some reason, I didn't really think of death. I looked up the person who had messaged me and saw that they worked at the Ukrainian Ministry for Foreign Affairs. I immediately thought that my brother must have been captured by the other side. I felt sick. Captivity seemed like the most frightening prospect to me. I had heard too many stories of the humiliation, torture, and other horrors faced by the prisoners of war taken by the Russian proxies, and I knew how hard it was to get them out. It was a sunny Saturday morning, and I was on the underground in London on my way to meet a friend in a park. 
As the train stopped at stations and the Wi-Fi connection reappeared, I got other similar messages. Good day. I am from the military unit where your brother is serving. Is serving, so he must be still alive. I tried to calm myself. Give me your number so I can get in touch. I jumped out of the train and ran outside where there was phone reception. I phoned my mother, realizing that I had bad news to tell her, but I still wasn't sure just how bad. I didn't want to shock her, so I started by saying that it might be nothing, but it sounds serious. I kept thinking of captivity. In my mind, I kept going through a list of friends I should contact to try and get more information, people I, who could advise us what to do to get him out. But my mom interrupted me and said, I got a call from a commander. Avolodya was killed on the front line. She was so calm. I felt a strange sense of relief, so he hadn't been captured after all. Almost immediately, the relief was replaced by an icy wave of reality. In movies, when they show you someone getting bad news, the camera spins to help you imagine the person's bewildered state of mind. It wasn't like that. Nothing was spinning. I had a completely clear head. I told my mom that I was on my way to her place, checked the train timetable for the next train to her station, decided whom I needed to call and in what order. I messaged those people back on Facebook. My mother has heard the news already. Thank you for getting in touch. One of them replied, we are just on our way to the morgue. Should be in Lviv tomorrow. The roads are bad here, so the guys can't drive quickly. I began to think how quickly I could get to Lviv. Could I be there before he arrived? The busy London station seemed completely empty. I didn't notice anyone. I texted my friend to tell her that I wasn't going to the park. It was only when I got on the train heading to my mother's and phoned my father that I broke down. I had to say the words my mom had just said to me. Avolodya was killed on the front line. But I couldn't do it calmly, like she had. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. It's uh, great to see you all, and Alicia, thank you so much for that reading. Welcome to all of you here in person and uh, those who are joining us via live streaming tonight. Um, the theme of our discussion is the war in Ukraine. How does it end? A conflict that, to be clear, didn't just begin in February 2022, of course, with the full-scale invasion of Russian troops. It began in 2014 with Moscow's seizure of Crimea. Now, I was in Kiev exactly one year ago thinking the Russians would make pretty short work of their mission. They had the manpower, the weaponry to overwhelm Ukraine. The Ukrainians, they had and have heart. I saw mothers and grandmothers making Molotov cocktails at road junctions to throw at advancing Russian troops. But heart isn't enough, I told myself. How wrong? I was, and three weeks ago, I was in Kyiv again, reporting on the stalemate of the conflict one year on. The Ukrainians now have Western weaponry, of course, to go with the heart. 
The Russians have new conscripts who are being trained, but morale is practically non-existent. So neither side at the moment is capable of a knockout blow. So, how does it end? Well, we've got a fantastic panel to chew over all this. Joining Olesya Chromachuk are Max Hastings, an award-winning historian, journalist, and broadcaster. He's penned 30 books, including most recently, Abyss, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Orlando Figes is a best-selling historian whose most recent book is The Story of Russia. And joining us remotely from Poland, I'm pleased to say, is Anne Applebaum, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and columnist at The Atlantic. Her most recent book is Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine. Ladies and gentlemen, our panel. Now, for everyone here in the audience, um, we're going to have a Q&A session a little bit later on. And for those of you joining us via live stream, you can send your questions too. Okay, let's begin. Um, I want to start with a simple question for all our panelists. And I'd like a yes or no one-word answer, if at all possible. Max, I want to start with you. Is there any, any legitimate justification that most people would understand for Putin's invasion of Ukraine? No. Orlando? No, obviously not. Alicia? Absolutely not. Anne? No. Okay, so we're clear on that. Let's go forward, Anne, with you in Poland. Um, obviously a frontline NATO state where concerns over Russian aggression are pretty acute. How do you see this war coming to an end? Uh, so first of all, thank you for allowing me to join you virtually. I've actually just come back from Ukraine a couple of days ago, so it would, it would have been logistically difficult for me to get to London, but I appreciate the opportunity to do this via Zoom. I would like to begin by disputing a little bit one of your introductory points, which is you, you said that the war is in a stalemate and it seems like nobody can win. Um, I think we're a little bit early to say that. Um, I think the war can be won, but of course, it will only really be won in the sense that the war will be over and it won't just be a ceasefire that will resume again next year with the battle resuming again in a month or two months or, or, or eight months. Um, it will be over when there is a change inside Russia. So when the Russians, the Russian elite, the Kremlin, maybe the population as well, go through the kind of experience that the French had with Algeria in the late 1950s or early 1960s, um, that the British had with the Irish after the, uh, the Irish War of Independence. In other words, when the Russians conclude that the war was a mistake, when they experience some kind of defeat that, that they can't explain or, or justify, um, when they understand that it wasn't worth it, it's not worth the money, it's not worth the number of deaths, that's when the war is over. And if that sounds vague, I'm sorry, because I, I, it, you know, I, can't give you an, I can't give you an answer like, you know, it'll be over on Tuesday or it'll be over next month. But it will be over when there is this change of heart. And when I was just in Ukraine last week, people were assuming that this change would come thanks to Ukrainian victories, which they hope will occur later this spring or this summer, probably in southern and eastern Ukraine and possibly also in Crimea. 
Um, I'm happy to elaborate on that further in a later answer, but that's my right. basic answer, which is that the war is over when the Russians have been made to understand that it was a mistake. Um, Max, um, to go back to the first point that Anne made there, that the war can be won, which I, I didn't actually say that the war couldn't be won, certainly by the Ukrainians. I said there is a stalemate at the moment. Do you agree with that, or do you think one side is winning at the moment? The first thing I'd say is that Anne Alessia knows incomparably more, and Orlando, about both Russia and Ukraine than I do. My only credentials for being here tonight are partly as a historian of war, but also because I do still talk to the military on both sides of the Atlantic. And um, I've always been influenced in my own view about this war. Let's start by saying we all want the same outcome of this war. We all want to see um, Putin destroyed. We want to see the Russians driven back into Russia. We want to see every yard of Ukrainian territory liberated. The only question is how much of a gap there is between what we want and what we're likely to get. And I have to say that in the course of history, first of all, it is the exception when you get an outcome uh, that is everything you want. Even in 1945, which everyone says a great Allied victory, Poland and the whole of Eastern Europe exchanged the tyranny of Hitler for the tyranny of Stalin. Even in 1945, it wasn't possible to get everything. But at the same time, I think where I totally agree with Anne, first, let us be in no doubt that but for the Americans, that today Ukraine would be toast that the Europeans, and this includes Britain, they've given some assistance to Ukraine, but not nearly enough. And the first thing to be said, and which I'd be in total agreement with Anne, is that the only way this war is going to end is when Putin and the Kremlin and the Russians realize that they're not going to win it. And that means that the Ukrainians have got to be provided with far more weapons, and I personally favor giving them long-range missiles and other stuff of that kind. However, and this is where I, I have to disagree with them, again, I'm only quoting my military friends, their view is, and has been all along, that whatever weapons the West gives to Ukraine, it's impossible for either side to achieve absolute military victory. So I'm driven back to think, as a historian, all wars end in conversations. We're nowhere near having a conversation now because both sides still believe they can achieve victory on the battlefield. But um, I, do, I, I have serious doubts whether this war will end in the way we would all want with the absolute victory of Ukraine. Alicia, is that your view too, being pragmatic, that there's going to have to be some kind of accommodation? I think we have to be pragmatic and understand that unless Ukraine regains all of its territories, regains territorial integrity, and by that I mean the borders, internationally recognized borders of 1991, um, this war will not be over. Uh, it might be some sort of ceasefire for maybe a very short time, maybe for a couple of years, uh, potentially in the best case scenario for a generation, although that's unlikely. Anything short of that is a prolongation of the war. That is 
the pragmatism of the situation. So we have really short memory. Um, not so long ago, a few months ago, I was asked by someone, how is it the Ukrainian troops have only regained just around 50% of the territory that was occupied by the Russian forces since the 24th of February 2022? To which I had to remind the person who was asking me, well, how is it that most Western observers predicted that Kyiv was going to fall within 72 hours and yet they've already regained 50% of the occupied territories and Russia has humiliated itself. We've so been preoccupied with you know, the Russians being humiliated by the Westerns. One, the only people who are humiliating the Russians are the Russians themselves, their own leadership, their own army that is performing so poorly. Um, so we have a, I think we have a very short memory. And to answer your question, when will the war, the war be over? when this territorial integrity restored, and also when justice is administered. And if something happened in a certain way in 1945 or after 1945, it doesn't mean that it has to be the same now. It doesn't have to be our standard now. We have seen the ICC issue arrest warrant during the war for the president of the Russian Federation. Uh, we can do things differently now, and we should be doing things differently. And it's up to all of us how quickly this war ends. Ukrainians have been asking for support for, uh, for weapons from day one, for air defense, for fighter jets, and so on. They, they're still receiving everything with great delays. We still lack faith in them, even though they proved themselves above and beyond of being very capable of defending their land. At first with defiance, why did we see people with flags and Molotov cocktails and jars of, uh, of pickles, as was one of the cases, a woman downed a, a drone with a jar of pickles? Well, that's because all they had at the time to rely on was defiance, because Western observers predicted the cave was going to fall in 72 hours. So maybe it's something that we also need to uh, think, what were our sources? Why we dismissed Ukrainians so much? Why we've not looked at all the changes that happened from 2014 until, uh, until the full-scale invasion? Um, why have we forgotten that this war was being fought by Ukrainians for eight years already before the start of the full-scale invasion? And what that means for our planning now? Um, Orlando, Anne talked about the war ending when they, the Russians, understand that it was a mistake. I think the words were made to understand. Were made to understand. Which is what? slightly different proposition. Okay. But, but I agree with the general principle. Yeah. That would be my starting position. What would that take? Well, no, I don't think peace is possible as long as this regime is in power in Russia. But how you get to a post-Putinite Russia is a very difficult question even to begin to ask. Because I don't see it happening quickly. I don't see the regime as anything but even more secure now than it was when the war began. The war has, is in itself a force of repression. Um, all of that wishful thinking that there might be a palace coup or an uprising or mutinies has come to nothing. And actually, unfortunately, the Kremlin's propaganda has real traction because it builds on mythologies and historical understandings of the Cold War and the collapse of 91 and everything else that the Russians have been taught and imbibed through schools and films about their history and about how they've been taught and encouraged to see the Ukrainians. Most Russians, unfortunately, at least acquiesce, deferring to the authorities 
and trusting in the, their, their propaganda that, that, you know, at the very least they didn't start the war, the West started the war, and that therefore they have to fight back or something. I mean, we can go into all of the, the, the sort of ways in which the propaganda works. I'm just saying that, unfortunately, the only way of ending this war is, is for, I agree with Anne, a completely different regime to emerge in Russia. But... <sighs> I can't see it happening in a hurry. And I think for this regime, it is an existential question. Mm. Um, not least because they may end up going to, to, to prison. Can, can I suggest, and I'd like to hear Anne, Anne on this subject, there seem to me to be two issues. Our, our specific theme this evening is how does it end? And I think there are two strands in this. One is on what geographical line it ends. But secondly, and I think this is a very important issue to talk about now, not when, is what guarantees is it possible to provide to Ukraine to ensure that the Russians don't start this whole thing up again 10 minutes later. And I think the question of guarantees is one we can and should and Western governments ought to be discussing now because there is no way that we should expect Ukraine um, to arrive at any sort of settlement with Russia unless those security guarantees exist. Mm. I mean, Anne, we should remember that, of course, Russia is a guarantor of Ukraine security under the Budapest Memorandum um, of the early 90s, under which Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons. And yet, it's the guarantor that's attacked Ukraine. Yes, the Budapest Memorandum is frequently cited in Ukraine as an example of the kind of security guarantee that they don't want. They don't want this time around. Um, Clearly, the, the one guarantee that would, that would give everybody in Ukraine the sense of safety that they need to resume their lives, for the refugees to come home, um, for foreign companies to invest, um, would be membership of NATO or some version thereof. So some guarantee that's, 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 that's more than just a piece of paper that is passed by parliaments and senates um, and that has attached to it some promise of response in case of a further invasion. Um, that's the kind of gold standards, and the Ukrainians do talk about that, and they do talk to their um, their Western friends and colleagues about it, and it, it's something that's um, that's discussed, I know, in in Washington as well. Mm. Um, but again, the shape of the war, the the way that the war ends, is still to be determined on the battlefield. I mean, I think this is why so many people find the conversation so frustrating because. Um, we can't say what the end looks like until we know what happens next. Mm. Um, and as I said, I think there are still a few turns in the, in the fighting to come. Um, a Ukrainian friend of mine said to me last week that, you know, the Americans never believe we can do anything until they see us do it. Um, I was reminded of that when Max was talking, because I can imagine who he's speaking to in Washington, um, who, who, who's skeptical, who wonders whether the Ukrainians can go farther. Um, they do believe they will, they will achieve some different way of fighting, that there will be a different kind of offensive this spring or next summer. They have their own internal changes that they've made using drones and technology of a kind that hasn't been used in Ukraine before, hasn't been used in that part of Europe before. Um, they have battalions and they have, they have soldiers who are training outside the country to learn how to fight in different ways. Um, and I think they're hoping for some kind of breakthrough. I mean, I, obviously I can't, I can't promise that that's what will happen, but it will be some combination of that, which creates the kind of defeat that can't merely be brushed off. You know, so far 
whenever the Russians lose, when they've retreated from Kherson or when they've retreated from the Kharkiv region, or even when they retreated from Kiev in the first part of the war, uh, first part of the war, they've always said, oh, we're doing it, you know, as a favor to you or for humanitarian reasons or, uh, you know, there, there needs to be a kind of defeat or a kind of loss um, that they can't explain away so easily and that their commanders can't explain away so easily. And it will probably have to have to be a loss that is in or around or near Crimea. Uh, Crimea is, um, it was the conquest of Crimea in 2014 that really revived Putin's presidency. He's identified with that conquest. He's, many of his historical references are to previous eras in Russian history when Crimea was conquered. His, one of his favorite historical characters is Potemkin, who um, was involved in the previous conquest of Ukraine. I, mean, this, I actually have Orlando's book about Crimea behind me on my bookshelf. Um, so I, I know there are others in this, in this conversation who can talk about it. But it may have to be an attack there, a threat there, a change there. Um, it may have to be Russians retreating from there. Um, it may have to be something that is not, is not brushed aside that will, that will, that will create a, you know, a, a chain reaction in Russia. And by the way, I don't think it has to be regime change. I don't really care if Putin stays in power. I don't, I don't have any feeling about who should be in charge of Russia. I don't have any way of knowing that or affecting it. But there does have to be a change in attitude. Um, it was de Gaulle who changed his mind about Algeria. It was a Russian czar who, after the defeat in Japan, decided to change the way Russia worked, decided to have a, a parliament. You know, it, it may be that Putin himself decides he needs to focus right. on his internal problems and his, his home situation rather than, rather than foreign adventurism. Um, and that may be the way, the form that the change takes. So okay. it's, not, it's sure. not regime change. Okay, and thank you, Orlando. I mean, do you see any possibility of a man like Vladimir Putin having a change of mind? No, no, I don't. I mean, I can't see that happening. And I think the Ukrainians are right. I think it is still their position that they won't negotiate with Putin. Um, and he wouldn't negotiate with them. He doesn't recognize their government. So, but I, I can't see that, you know, there would be some sort of climb down, oh, it was a mistake, we're sorry, and here's the new security. I just don't see that at all. Uh, but the, I think the problem is deeper than that. You know, Putin is, in fact, taking it in the other direction. He's militarizing the whole of Russian economy now. And there will be further conscriptions. But the problem is deeper than that. It's not regime change we need. It's a revolution, really. Because, um, you know, take the question of Crimea. I mean, my sense is that if there were Ukrainian divisions moving through, through the, into the Crimean Peninsula, he would use tactical nuclear weapons. That's my sense. It's part of their, and has been since 2014, part of their military strategy, that they're usable, they have to be usable. But then, you know, if we talk about what does Crimea mean to the Russian imperial vision that he has, and not just the Russian imperial vision, but more specifically the Russian nationalist vision, which is very different, then um, it's not something that anyone in the Russian political establishment would accept to lose Crimea. You know, in other words, if you could sort of wave a magic wand and have democratic elections in Russia, which were genuine, anyone elected into power would be very, very reluctant to negotiate to over Crimea. Yeah. Alicia? 
Could I make a couple of points, one on Crimea, one on uh, potential use of nuclear weapons, because these, these kind of things come up in, in discussions wherever I go. On Crimea, so it's been something that we've dismissed for, for, for the first eight years of the war. Whenever I spoke in different, um, in different settings, I was always, and brought up Crimea before 2022, I was always told that it's a done deal and I should just forget about it, I'm being naive. And yet, again, coming back to your question, what is pragmatic, if we have a look, even if we put aside, although I don't wish us to put aside the discussion of the fact that we've been watching and accepting uh, essentially the genocide of the indigenous population of Crimea, Crimean Tatars, for at least eight years uh, now, or nine years already, because they are the ones that are being primarily targeted in, in, on the Crimean Peninsula. Um, but, but even if we go you know, wider to a wider question, Crimea is connected to uh, mainland Ukraine. It's reliant upon resources of southern Ukraine. That's why the Russians were so keen on occupying occupying the, the southern parts of Ukraine that, that they are uh, trying to cling on to now. And without that uh, supply, that connection to southern Ukraine, it would really struggle to continue existing as it struggled for the first eight years of the war. And also, if Crimea is not deoccupied, it, it will continue being a launching platform for missile attacks against the rest of Ukraine, as we have been seeing uh, over this whole year. And on the question of escalation, so we've been appeasing Putin uh, because he's been blackmailing us with, with nuclear escalation for quite a long time. There's a couple of things I want to say. Appeasement has led us to where we are at the moment. Uh, it has led to the escalation. We've allowed the war criminal to essentially keep committing war crimes and be rewarded for committing war crimes by, by keeping the, uh, the parts of occupied territories. And um, he, we, we heard what Medvedev said after the decision of ICC. He threatened The Hague. So does that mean that the ICC should uh, revoke its decision uh, to issue arrest warrant to Putin because uh, Medvedev is threatening that they might nuke The Hague? Um, how how far do we go in this appeasement? The only way to ensure that Russia stops the nuclear blackmail is to ensure that it is not able to continue blackmailing the rest of the world. And also, when we are preoccupied with Russia's nuclear blackmail, we should also remember that uh, for a long time now, Russia's been, Russian troops have been occupying the largest nuclear power station uh, in Europe, in Zaporizhia, and has been uh, torturing uh, the staff there, uh, kidnapping uh, staff there, and depriving, now actually putting it in massive danger by uh, also um, interfering with water supply from Kachovka Reservoir. So there are plenty of reasons for us to be concerned about nuclear escalation even without tactical nuclear weapons being used and okay. essentially deoccupation. All right, okay, I want to bring Max in there because, and your contacts are way better than mine, I'm sure, but my understanding is that it has been made pretty damn clear to the Russians that any use of a tactical nuclear weapon would be the end. We're not sure. Um, what I'm reading, and here I'm merely quoting the Washington Post and Foreign Affairs, but although the messages, the signals have been sent from Washington, there's still an awful lot of doubt about what does or does not get through to Putin um, right. and what he knows and, knows and sees in all this. I'd like to say something. Um, we, we talk a lot about Ukraine and about Russia. I think in part of this equation, we need to come clean about us, about Europe and about Britain. Um, I think there's an enormous degree of, of complacency um, among an awful lot of people who say, we've been supporting Ukraine all the way. Well, this is simply not true. The all the way bit 
Even Britain, Britain has done more than any other nation in Europe providing weapons and so on, except for Poland and the Baltic states proportionately. But nonetheless, I think it is a mark of shame that our government to this day has still not ordered replacements for all the munitions um, that have been sent to Ukraine and our cupboards are almost bare. And I, I think the cynicism of this, that our leaders go on saying publicly, well, we're supporting Ukraine, we're supporting Ukraine. In contrast, the United States is the only major power. The United States has embarked on a two-year program to quadruple its ammunition production, which seems to me an absolutely realistic uh, step to take in this situation because some of us believe whatever view one takes about the exact end, and as I say, Anne and I and Alessia might have differences about the detail, but there is absolutely no doubt in the minds of most of us, we have to keep, enable the arm the, um, the Ukrainians to keep enormous pressure on Putin so that even the Kremlin eventually has to conclude this is not worth going on. And that means weapons, and at the moment, the Europeans have done pathetically little, and even the British, I mean, just sending 14 Challenger tanks, um, is, is, is ludicrous. It's a ludicrous gesture. And what we should be doing, I will believe the British are serious, the British government is serious, when I see the British government placing orders for munitions on the assumption that we're on a historic conflict with Russia and, and China, probably, which is not going to be over any time soon and we are going to need to rearm. And as for what the Europeans have or have not done, the Germans have talked a good game, they've done almost nothing. And if I were a Ukrainian, this is, it's the cynicism of all these politicians who troop from Western Europe to Ukraine and said, we're with you all the way, and they have done almost nothing. And this is one of the reasons, it's because of my fear they'll continue to do almost nothing, um, that I tend to take a cautious, skeptical view about how this thing's going to end. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. Part two of this event will be available as our next episode. Subscribers can access all three episodes now. This event was produced by executive producer Hannah Kay and senior producer Connor Boyle. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or on Twitter at Intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.